0: National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues.
1: And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my best to find experts who can address your topic. One of the courses I taught at Carleton College is a course called Studies in Weapons of Mass Destruction. And that course, as you might imagine, was wildly popular among the students. In that course, we covered nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons, and we also decided to include cyber as a potential weapon with strategic impacts. With me today is one of the professors who team-taught that course with me, Professor Jeff Ondick, who is currently serving as the chair of the Computer Science Department at Carleton College. He's also the John E. Sawyer Professor of Liberal Learning. Born and raised in Minneapolis, or born and raised in St. Louis Park, uh, Jeff graduated with mathematics degrees from St. Olaf College in 1983 and the University of Minnesota in 1989. Since 1991, Jeff has been a professor of computer science at Carleton College. He has taught across the computer science disciplines, from computer security to complexity theory to natural language processing, with an emphasis on software engineering and security. Jeff is also the founder, owner, and lead software developer for Ultralingua Incorporated, a company specializing in linguistic software. Ultralingua's products include multilingual dictionary apps, word games, and linguistic tools for software developers. Professor Jeff Ondick, welcome to National Security This Week.
0: Great to be here, John. Thanks for having me. I'm
1: glad we're both here in studio today. This is going to be a great conversation. It's always fun to have, uh, have somebody sitting across from me to, yeah. to have this conversation. Seeing a real human being. Indeed, and, indeed. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience, this is going to be the first of a series of shows that I plan to have on cyber throughout the year. Uh, so let, let's jump right in. Jeff, there are many things I want to ask you today, so let's get started on our, on our topic. Uh, today we're going to talk sort of that nexus of uh, computer science, the cyber arena, and national security. And, and for our audience, maybe we should begin by defining a few terms uh, for our listeners uh, to set sort of a level playing field. And this this is going to be the tough one right out of the gate. Let's begin with the basics. Can you explain sort of briefly how the Internet actually works? <laughs> I'll bet dollars to donuts most people have, have no idea. And, and, and that includes me, by the way.
0: Well, I really appreciate you starting with a, a short and easy question. <laughs> yeah. All right. To keep this within, uh, you know, the range of time we got here, I've sure. got four words for you. Okay. Client, server, what was my other one? Oh, yeah, protocol. Okay. And um, routing. So I'm going to do this quick. Um, take your web browser. Yep. It's an example of a client. Um, When you, as a person, say, hey, web browser, I want to know something about um, Moderna reactions, for example, right? You type Moderna reactions. Now your client, your browser, says, all right, I need help with this. My friend Google knows how to do this. And so it puts together a little packet and sends that packet over to the Google machine, which is in California or wherever it is, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's software running on that machine that's called a server. And so the the server receives the request, uh, assembles a response, sends the response back. Okay. So you've got clients asking for service, servers providing that service in response to requests.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Yep. Then um, you've got to get the messages there. That's routing. Uh, big, complicated area. Um, but basically the... Uh, all the machines that are between your laptop and the, the Google server say there's a hop, 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 and each one of those machines has to make a decision. Who do I hand this to next? Okay. So that is, that's complicated and cool. The language that your browser uses to make the request, that's called a protocol. Okay. And it's like... You wouldn't, uh, if a pilot's talking to air traffic control, they're not going to use poetry, right? <laughs> they're going to use a formalized, structured language okay. to say, "Do you have a runway for me? Where should I be?" Right. You mm-hmm. don't, you use certain structured language, and that's what a protocol is. Okay. So that's all I got for
1: now. No, that 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 that's great. So as you, as that message goes out across uh, you know the internet, uh, it's moving at how fast?
0: Milliseconds. Okay. Um, uh, to the round-trip time is, uh, from here to California, say, it would be 50, 60 milliseconds typically.
1: Okay. So very, 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 very fast. Yeah. And the bigger your the bandwidth you have available to you, the faster the yeah. upload and download is going to be. Yeah, there's computer. filters along the way. Yeah. So. Okay. So things will slow down. Yeah. And I, and I asked that question, uh, you know, how the Internet works. Uh, primarily because it sets the stage for our discussion today uh, that we 're going to have on cyber issues and, and national security, uh, we should probably define a, a few more terms before we get into some some more in depth discussion. Uh, what is artificial intelligence and, and, and how does it work uh, of course in layman 's terms
0: right yeah so artificial intelligence is one of those terms that uh, people have been fighting over for years about you know what what should the actual definition be? The definition that I like is Artificial intelligence is software we develop to try to make computers do well things that people are good at. Okay. So there's lots of stuff that people are bad at that (laughs) computers already do well, right? Your spreadsheet is going to add up the numbers correctly every time. Mm -hmm. Ask ask a person to add up a thousand numbers. Good luck. Right. Right. Um, But uh, there's things that people do super uh, easily. Um, Recognize faces. Uh, you know, uh, parse language and 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 generate new language, all that kind of stuff, um, is hard. We've found it difficult to get computers to do that. Artificial intelligence is concerned with those sorts of questions.
1: Okay, uh, so let's expand on that. We hear all the time about the impending arrival of artificial intelligence in our world. Um, maybe we can. What you can help us understand is is how machine learning, that term machine learning, how that impacts the development of of AI. Uh, so, how does machine learning work to create better programs and and then support potentially platforms? Yeah.
0: So, um, one thing about artificial intelligence generally is that there's this vocabulary around it that's really evocative and metaphorical, and you're talking about neurons, and you're talking about you know the computer's brain and so on. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, tends to get people um, a little overexcited. Sure. Uh, what we have in machine learning is a class of algorithms that were devised a long, long time ago, but that have started, there have been enough breakthroughs in recent years that they've started to become really useful. And it goes roughly like this. Uh, There are certain kinds of problems where you have a type of input, and then you want a particular kind of answer. So here's a question. Here's, Here's one that is really good, easy for people to do, not so easy for machines to do. If I hand you a photograph And so ask you the question, is there a dog in this photograph? Hmm. You look at it, you'll say yes or no, right? And it's pretty easy. Most photos, you're going to be able to authoritatively answer this question. You'll make some mistakes, right? Oh, you missed the little chihuahua peeking out of the backpack. Right. Or, yeah, no, that's not a dog, that's a fox, right? Yeah. But your error rate is going to be low. And you're going to have pretty high confidence. And this is a hard problem, right? Because you could look at the dog from the side. There's a million different kinds of dog breeds. Mm -hmm. You know, People are really good at this task. Sure. So how do you make a computer be good at this task? The the algorithms that uh, have been developed over the last 20 years, but have really taken off in the last 10, um, we'll take a whole big data set of photographs. Some of them have dogs. Some of them don't. But you have people say yes, no, yes, no to every one of these photos. And these algorithms can be trained. So you take that data set of correct answers, feed it in, and then when you a- then um, once that training is done, you can feed this same machine a new photo, and it can make the call. And those sorts of decision problems um, that can be trained by... Large training data sets um, have become better and better uh, with the rise of machine learning in the last few years.
1: So, so we discussed before we got on the air this idea of having sort of an iterative kind con- of conversation today as we as we move through these topics. Uh, let's let's expand on that. You you mentioned mm-hmm. data sets. Mm-hmm. So we've heard also in the news about big data. Mm-hmm. and why that is so important. And if you take a look from a national security perspective at what China is doing in collecting big data mm-hmm. to pro- to help process all of their machine learning and potential uh, uses for national security, wh- where do you see that going globally? <laughs> um, people are
0: just going to keep coming up with creative ways to use large data sets. Okay. Um, and uh, one of the reasons, you know, we're starting to see uh, our Senator Klobuchar just released a book called Antitrust, right? Right, right? We're seeing a rise of interest in antitrust in this country, um, uh, partly because the companies that have made their billions off of collection and deployment of large data sets mm-hmm. have been extremely creative in those uses, and they would like to continue to collect and analyze that data without constraint. Sure. So we're talking Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple and, you know, name them. All the big tech companies and China and North Korea and whatever.
1: Sure. So there's a there's certainly a, a mechanism for that in the commercial sector, but clearly there's a huge application for that in a national security <laughs> realm as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So I know that you're not an expert in this question, this topic, but I'll, I'm going to ask you to take a crack at explaining what a robot is, a, a, and maybe what autonomous platforms are as well. Sure. So.
0: Um, we, uh, a lot of the computation that our sort of day-to-day computers do, uh, there are input devices and output devices. My laptop has a keyboard and has a trackpad and it has a screen and a speaker. And I guess it's got a microphone. So it's got some input devices, sensors, and it's got some output devices. We, we sort of look past those things just in using them. It, you know, Looking through the screen is like looking at some sort of virtual world rather than mm-hmm. a physical device, but it's a physical device you can attach all sorts of types of sensors and actuators to a computer. And so if you attach wheels or propellers, um, that is very similar to attaching a screen uh, or a speaker. To a computer, and similarly, you can attach all sorts of sensors so instead of a trackpad and a keyboard, if you tra- attach a camera and a microphone uh, or a you know acidity tester or whatever right mm-hmm. you can and so robots um, are going to be uh, are going to be computers with whatever combination of actuators and
1: and sensors you want to give them to perform certain classes of tasks. Okay. So most robots today still require some human input uh, to control what you want them to do.
0: Certainly true. Certainly true. Okay. Um, and uh, there's a lot of tasks where... Here, let me give you an example where robots are really powerful. You want One of the reasons you want to develop a robot is to send them into dangerous situations so you don't have to send people. Okay. That, that, and, that's a good... Uh, Good lead into what we're going to talk about later. <laughs> right. So <laughs> one of the earliest um, sort of marquee projects for robot development was uh, search and rescue in disaster scenes. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've got a, a burning building, you've got a, a, a bomb site, whatever, um, and you want to, and you you don't trust that the the beams are going to hold when you send a person in there. So you send some robots in there. You can, if you have autonomous robots that have uh, sophisticated enough algorithms that they can. They can seek what they're looking for, like survivors, right, and then announce that they're there. Um, Autonomy is great. You know, they they can wander around the building like a Roomba and try to find uh, find survivors or find stuff that needs to be saved. Um, uh, But often it is better to have this combination of autonomy plus uh, uh, a human intervention option, right? So when when they find a survivor, when they find, uh, here's a pool of gasoline we would probably want to control, right? Um, Then then the person steps in and starts controlling that robot. And that combination of computer-assisted work rather than
1: fully autonomous work Mm -hmm. is really powerful. Okay. So, so let's go back to that term machine learning. How, how does machine learning contribute to the development of AI that might control these kinds of autonomous platforms in the not-too-distant future? Right.
0: Um, there are certain kinds of problems that have, it's been difficult up to now for us to program into the, in, into the autonomy of the device. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, uh, like the like my example of recognizing dogs in photographs. Mm -hmm. Um, You think about self-driving cars, uh, recognizing a a stop sign. Um, You know, you have missed a stop sign once in a while. You just didn't see it. It was partially behind a tree or whatever. Not as far as you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm pretty sure. So... um, uh, Right. So the machine learning algorithms have enabled us to do a lot better job of getting the computers to automatically uh, do image processing, detecting uh, the presence of certain conditions
1: that, you know, 10 years ago we just couldn't get them to do. Okay. So we're going to come back to a uh, discussion on AI, robotics, and autonomous operations in a few minutes uh uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Carleton College Professor of Computer Science, Jeff Ondick, and we're talking about cyber and national security. Uh, so Jeff, we we taught the Studies and Weapons of Mass Destruction course together at Carleton. Uh, that was back in 2017. Uh, many things have changed in the past four years, and cyber has definitely grown in importance. Uh, we've seen a, ve- a few you know, pretty interesting cyber operations that have occurred uh, in the past, and not too distant past, actually. Uh, let's discuss one that people have probably heard the term. They've probably heard it in the news, uh, but they probably don't understand the specifics. And that, that was Stuxnet, the term Stuxnet. What was that cyber operation, and how did it infiltrate the Iranian nuclear power program in Natanz? Right. So
0: in the mid-2000s, the Bush administration was trying to figure out how to at least delay the Iranian uh, enrichment of uranium. So. And um, one of the questions they had was whether it was possible to, u- using just software, could you break things? Um, so they did a test in Idaho in, I don't know, 2007, something like that, called the Aurora test. It was quite secret for a long time, um, where they... Um, Uh, asked the question of if you introduce a virus into the into the network with a um, what was this device it was a a a generator Mm. with a particular type of generator could that software destroy the generator and the answer turned out to be yes interesting turning it on and off (laughs) in a particular speed you've got a physical device with digital switching technology Um, The the malware was able to turn it on, turn it off, turn it on, turn it off in such a sequence that it just burst in. It started rocking and then burst into flames. Sure, yeah. And so they said, okay, that's that's promising. We would like to do that with the centrifuges in the secret Iranian nuclear enrichment plant. uh, plant. Mm -hmm. And so there were a bunch of problems with that. One is getting the software onto that uh, that plant's
1: network. Because it was air-gapped.
0: It was air-gapped, was a right? It was not connected <laughs> to the internet. Right? Yeah. Um, so that was one problem. Uh, another problem is not having it be detected. We, they really, really wanted to be able to destroy these centrifuges, but not in a way where it was obvious that it was an attack. Mm-hmm. They wanted to make it look like it was just a slightly higher than average attrition rate for these machines. And uh, so... That, uh, from what I read, uh, this was successful at um,
1: delaying that program by at least a couple of years. Yeah. Can you can you talk a little bit about, if you, if you happen to know, sure. how or how they infiltrate that virus, that computer code, into the Nathan's yeah system? Almost all
0: uh, computer malware has to be introduced uh, with a combination of. Technical attacks and human attacks. Okay. And in this case, you have to have a person walk that software in and plug it into the side of the computer with a thumb drive.
1: Knowingly or unknowingly, in this case, pretty sure in, it was unknowingly. In, right. Indeed.
0: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> as you might imagine, neither the uh, U.S. nor Israeli government has been forthcoming with a lot of details sure. about this in public. Um, but uh,
1: but yes, that's the best guess. Is And my understanding of that particular operation was that uh, the software, the the malware, uh, computer virus, whatever we want to call it, was sort of released into the internet with the idea that it was seeking certain what are called programmable logic controllers or PLCs Mm -hmm. that actually operated the centrifuges in the Natanz uh, refinement facility in, in Iran. And so it wouldn't really do anything until it found the right PLCs over time, the pro- program of the logical contro- logic controls. So it sort of migrated itself all across the internet uh, around mm-hmm. the world. It was discovered by one of the computer security companies. I think semantic. Semantic. Um, there you go.
0: Yeah, there's a yeah. Which is which is the great book about this? Um, Kim Zetter. Um, Countdown to Zero Day, great okay. book okay. Uh, that, that does a lot of detail on this story. Um, yeah, so th- this was written by a highly professional and well-funded team. And uh, they really wanted to have a very narrow focus of, of attack. A lot of the biggest malware problems in the history of malware, um, uh, the programs have had bugs that have made them too virulent. Mm-hmm. And these governments really, really wanted these to be narrowly focused. Uh, they wanted it to, to spread so it had a higher likelihood of showing up at the Natanz plant, but they only wanted to attack that one plant. Okay. And so uh, the code just looked for specific uh, model
1: numbers and serial numbers of, of these controllers. The PLCs that were purchased yeah. from, from Germany, I believe. And they're taking, you mentioned zero days. Mm-hmm. They're taking advantage of these zero-day vulnerabilities. Can you explain what a zero-day vulnerability is? Right.
0: Uh, a zero-day vulnerability is some sort of bug in a piece of hardware or software that has, um, up till a certain point, not been discovered uh, by anybody. So zero days since a, a false discovery. Precisely. Discovered. <laughs> Precisely. Okay. All right. And so there is uh, a, a substantial... Uh, Non-public market in the the distribution and sale of zero-day bugs, and governments, as you might imagine, have to have policies and decision-making processes for: do we hang on to this zero-day, or do we report it to Microsoft? Do we report it to Apple? Do we report right? Um, Because for the security of our citizens, um, we may very well want to plug that hole Mm -hmm. um, uh, for the potential offensive maneuvers. Uh, we might want to have that hole available to us if we think nobody else knows about yeah. it.
1: So so now you're talking about uh, operations that U.S. Cyber Command or the U.S. intelligence community might want to take advantage of zero-day vulnerabilities that we discover through the U.S. government. Uh, so you have to sort of weigh, you know, is it the greater good to not let anybody know about the zero-day vulnerability and potentially take advantage of that for Co- you know, covert or clandestine operations, or do we tell our people and, and patch those bugs, right? That's it. So let's continue on a little bit with the Stuxnet discussion. Uh, the malware uh, filters through the Internet. It gets on somebody's thumb drive. They, they move it from the Internet into the secure system at Natanz. It uploads itself into the Natan system and it gets inside what's called the SCADA network, Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition, SCADA, S-C-A-D-A. What does that look like in a control facility like Natanz where SCADA gives you a central location to manage thousands of, rea- of uh, these centrifuges that are uh, refining uranium? Right.
0: So you have all these devices, um, and uh, and they're all generating... Data, right? What's the current uh, centrifuge speed? What? How long has it been running? uh, What's the temperature? Whatever, whatever. And so you have all this data. And so a SCADA system is is going to um, try to provide the operators with a sort of a one screen or a three monitor um, display that enables them to um, keep an eye on what's going on with the system as a whole. Um, If uh, anomalies occur, there's some sort of problem with a single device, then that will be some sort of alert will pop up and and the operator will be able to quickly um, either shut that device down or modify its behavior or whatever. And so because it's so much information, the data visualization has to be effectively designed so that the operator can actually
1: make sense of too much information. Sure. And, and SCADA was developed so that you didn't have it, – it It lessened the manpower requirements for people running around checking every sensor right. on a massive complex like an oil refinery or a nuclear power plant or something like that. It sort of slaves all those, those outputs to a single control room that can be monitored very easily by a handful of people rather than hundreds of people. Yeah, exactly.
0: But the downside, of course, is that now your both your sensory and your – actuator, you know, your your change your behavior
1: device. Both of those are now networked and they weren't networked before. Exactly. So the Stuxnet malware gets in between where the SCADA screens are showing and everything is in the green, but what's actually happening is that those centrifuges are spinning up much beyond their capacity and rapidly slowing down, basically breaking the the centrifuges over time and nobody in the control room has any idea what's going on. Is that roughly how Stuxnet worked?
0: Yeah, exactly. Stuxnet uh, changed the behavior of the centrifuges and lied about it to the
1: SCADA system. Excellent. So there's a great example of how cyber operations can very effectively destroy hardware. Indeed. Okay. So let's move on to uh, get back to another another topic. We, we've heard lately about the development of uh, of military unmanned platforms, uh, mostly unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs. Uh, but more recently, we've sort of developed unmanned undersea vessels, UUVs, and unmanned surface vessels, or USVs. And, and they're also, frankly, robotic platforms that can r- run across the ground or use tracts uh, to, to roll across the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, what thoughts come to your mind as we consider the implications of robotics, autonomous operation of unmanned systems, using machine learning leading to true artificial intelligence? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. All right. I tend to be a skeptic
0: about uh, that last point, the uh, general artificial intelligence. Uh, there is There have been a lot of people who have tried to give computers common sense for example. Very hard to do. It's very hard to do. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that we know about the world uh, that we don't think about. Like um, if I sit on the chair I'll actually stay on top of the chair and not slip underneath it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so. Um, so general intelligence I'm not personally concerned about. I, there are people who are. Um, I am concerned about a bunch of things. Um, here's one. Uh, bugs, yeah, you know, um, th- we will have bugs in our software. Mm-hmm. Even extremely well-funded development projects will have bugs, and some of those will be catastrophic. Right. And so, if you start to uh, if you start to give your autonomous vehicles a lot of autonomy and weapons, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the bugs could be a problem. What,
1: what could possibly <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> right?
0: So I'm, I'm concerned about that. But there's another thing that's maybe not as obvious um, as I feel like as we move more and more thinking, if you will, to our computers, whether or not they have wheels, mm-hmm. right, um, uh, we it may feel like we are uh, removing human judgment from the equation. And when you remove human judgment, of course, you remove the opportunities for bad human judgment. But <laughs> but you also remove... So I I worry about autonomous systems. Um, the programmers and the developers of the software and the policymakers who charge those developers um, make some decisions ahead of time about what sort of policies should be enacted by the software. Mm-hmm. There will be bugs. But there will also be this... It's, it's easy to sort of... Uh, move the responsibility and the accountability off of the people and into the machines right. in a lot of people's minds mm-hmm. when, in fact, that's not where responsibility belongs.
1: Right. A great example of that, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but would be the uh, the Boeing was a 757 MAX Indeed. that had a yeah. bug in the software yep. that actually took away the control of that the pilots should have had right. to control the, the two aircraft that wind up crashing.
0: Right. And the accountability there really needs to be, you know, as I, as I read the stories anyway, uh, needs, ultimately the accountability needs to go up to the people who made the policy decision to reduce the budgets in particular areas in the development of that yeah. plane.
1: Okay, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Carleton College Professor of Computer Science Jeff Ondick, and we're talking about cyber and national security. Uh, so let's let's continue on the, the theme of uh, unmanned platforms and, and robotics, uh, if you don't mind, Jeff. Right now, the U.S. military and, co- frankly, countries all over the world, I think we're up to about 70 different nations around the world now, have invested heavily in developing and, and advancing the capabilities of unmanned platforms. We usually hear... Uh, the press refer to UAVs as drones, right? Uh, but that's not exactly accurate. Uh, UAVs in operation today still have a human flying them for the most part, uh, at least the ones that carry weapons. Uh, they're flying them remotely, of course. Uh, but the man in the loop retains control over the lethal systems that are on the UAVs. In the case of uh, uh, you know the, the UAVs that have been operating in combat zones, typically Reaper drones, they, they're called, They have uh, Hellfire missiles that have to be fired by the pilot flying that UAB. As a computer scientist and someone familiar with advancing technology, uh, I suspect you've taught a course or two uh, about ethics and morality in computer science. Uh, With machine learning and, and true AI possibly a reality in the future, how concerned would you be that lethal unmanned platforms equipped with AI being used by any military or intelligence organization or or any nation frankly in the world uh, true autonomous use where the computer gets to make the decision about whether or not to use their lethal weapons
0: yeah I, I worry about this a lot um, there are uh, I am delighted to hear what you just described that at the moment for the u s military that there needs to be a person making the call. And I think that that is the kind of policy and control that we really want to retain. Um, But the temptation, the temptation to uh, push that decision out into the machine itself is going to be persistent and high. Um, For budgetary reasons... And for, like I was talking about a couple minutes ago, uh, sort of responsibility evasion mm-hmm. reasons. So it's it's hard for me to believe that there won't be countries that will
1: follow that temptation. Sure. So we're, we'll expand on that thought in just a minute. So So that said, we usually think about a single UAV platform, mm-hmm. right, when a... When you have a a pilot flying a single UAV, we consider the ramifications of what happens when a single UAV goes to true autonomous operations. But we know that DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, uh, has already developed swarm technologies for UAVs. In fact, there was a great story on 60 Minutes a few years ago talking about these, these swarm technologies that DARPA has been working on. Uh, right now, mostly uh, what they've d- shown publicly is that smaller UAVs operating as a coordinated entity. Uh, the swarms use what are call, what's called uh, distributed computing and cooperative threat engagement techniques. C- can you explain those two terms uh, briefly, distributed computing and cooperative threat engagement? Sure. Distributed computing is a bunch
0: of computers talking to each other to try to solve a shared problem. Um, so,
1: computers connected to the internet can already do that
0: they can, and uh, some of the some applications of distributed computing um, are impeded by long lag times, so you were you were excited about the short sixty millisecond uh turnaround time but that's that 's uh if you have a bunch of uh u i v s trying to talk to each other in a you know hundred meter range you don 't want sixty millisecond. Response times—you want one millisecond sure. or less.
1: Yeah. Right. instantaneous. And you're instantaneous. Right. right.
0: Yeah. So some kinds of problems are harder to solve uh, uh, with larger time lags, but you know, sometimes that's what you've got. Anyway, distributed computing is really simply a bunch of computers, uh, programs
1: working together on a single problem. So in the case of a swarm of UAVs, say a hundred UAVs. All 100 of the computers on board those small UAVs are communicating with each other to solve a problem.
0: Right. And they may, you know, there's various ways to uh, design that uh, structure. So there might be one of these UAVs that is the center, and everybody talks to that one. Mm -hmm. Um, They might talk to each other uh, sort of individually, kind of like our phones have been developed uh, to talk to each other when they're close to each other. Um, uh, So those architectural choices um, can affect what kinds of problems can be solved and how efficiently. So the cooperative threat
1: engagement, what is that?
0: Yeah, uh, so to be honest, audience here, John told me what it was a (laughs) few minutes ago. (laughs) Um, It is uh, a bunch of computers uh, cooperating
1: to assess and then uh, do something about a threat. So uh, the reason we bring this up is uh, with swarm technologies and, and UAVs as an example, uh, DARPA has already shown that, that these these algorithms that have been written allow these UAVs to be given a mission, and they coordinate with each other through distributed computing to decide how to perform that mission. So if you advance those concepts uh, towards the future and you think about the fact that swarm UAV technologies uh put on board highly advanced UAVs uh, that may have supersonic capabilities, heavily uh, armed platforms and now you have millisecond computing capability where they decide how to engage enemy aircraft or attack an enemy ground position. Uh, it, it, the decision speed with which computers can operate is well beyond anything humans can use to communicate to each other what they should do in a crisis or in combat. Is that a true statement? The decision speed it can be high. Yeah. I agree with that. So what we'll run into, I think, and this is just my personal opinion, is that uh, we have a huge challenge ahead of us in deciding how much autonomy we want to pass off to our systems, whether it just simply be a cyber operation for cyber warfare or... The role computers play in kinetic warfare because the speed with which computers can make decisions and engage targets is well beyond what humans can manage
0: right, right. and I think a, a responsible deployment of this kind of technology would require an enormous amount of uh, simulation of scenarios uh, to see whether you whether it 's possible to um, to program good decision making right fast decision making that's one that's thing easy. <laughs> good decision making is not so yeah. uh, not so easy
1: yeah so if we if we couple distributed computing cooperative threat engagement artificial intelligence autonomous operation the does that concept concern you as applied to military capability even more so now that we've had this more of a discussion on this
0: um yes yes it does um i you know you and i have talked many times about um, your experience with the uh, the processes of the u s military, and that in fact those processes have been developed to constrain the power of the military in positive ways right? mm-hmm. yeah. and um, I feel really delighted to live in a country where, to a large extent, the military behaves this way. Um, however, the technologies developed by the military have uh, spent been doing a lot of um, Leaking out into police departments, mm-hmm. um, and that has not gone so well because their policies are not as well developed, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one w- area I'm worried about. I'm also worried about the lack of constraint on corporations for the use of these. So I am, uh, actually, I'm right at the moment more worried about surveillance, mm. governmental and corporate, than
1: I am uh, about uh, drones with guns. Yeah, and and on that, I would tell you that uh, there are significant restraints already in place on uh, the intelligence community or law enforcement uh, for what kind of surveillance can be done. None of those things exist for corporate America. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I got, I got my copy of the of Globishire's <laughs> book. I'm yeah. going to be reading it shortly. So, so Jeff, uh, we just have a few minutes left. I'll give you the last word. What other trends do you see in the world of uh, computer science and cyber operations? Uh, wh- what do the American people need to know about and consider as these capabilities mature and are used by nations, companies, and, and maybe even hyper-empowered individuals around the world? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, so uh,
0: first of all, I think at the moment uh, – we're, we're talking about software that works with machines that impact the physical world. Mm-hmm. Uh, an awful lot of the action right now is not there. It's right. in uh, remote teams, you know, Russian, North K- Korean, whoever's teams, um, trying to, you know, plant fake news. This mm-hmm. is one of the things they've been doing. So propaganda and behavior modification and uh, uh, erosion of trust in uh, governmental systems and so on is, w- is one of the attacks. Uh, intellectual property theft, this was a, a popular thing for China's teams to do for quite a few years. Still now, so is. <laughs> still is, yeah. So that's, that's one thing, is that uh, these physical things we're talking about are important, yeah. um, but they're not where all the action is. Okay, okay so that's one. Yeah. Two, um, AI is not actually magic. It's a it's a collection of techniques and algorithms uh, that uh, come at problems in different ways than other kinds of algorithms do. But I would say that AI applications are not more amazing and more magical than your word processor or your web browser. And I think it's really important for Americans to try to see through the hype. To the extent that they can.
1: So uh, let me clarify on that then. Mm-hmm. So what AI is is not uh, a, a machine that truly thinks the way a human thinks. It's just a series of machine learning algorithms employed that allow a computer to react or behave much the same way a human would.
0: Right. Okay. And there are there are people who believe that eventually the development of these algorithms will lead to something that is very similar in kind to conscious human thought. Okay. Yeah, but at the moment, uh, there's not a lot of evidence that's happening. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, all software has bugs. This mm-hmm. is a really important thing to think about. So you think about the cool things the military could do with these devices. There will be bugs. What do we do about that when they happen? Mm-hmm. Um, Talked about surveillance. Um, oh, yeah. And as with any of these kinds of tools, my biggest concerns are not technical. My biggest concerns are too much power in too few hands. Mm,
1: yeah. Yeah, monopolization of power. Sure. Yeah. One of the things that's going on right now, uh, that's impacted auto manufacturing, a whole bunch of other things, is the shortage of uh, uh, computer chips, microprocessing computer mm-hmm. chips. Uh, wh- where do you see that impacting things right now?
0: <laughs> this gets us into I don't know somebody else's expertise. Okay. <laughs> right. okay. The the uh, I mean, uh, who has the uh, who has the muscle to get the um, to get the chips when they're in short supply, uh, that, that could affect which industries rise and fall. You know, I could see, for example, renewable energy being shorted on chips.
1: Sure. Uh, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of challenges out there on the chip shortage uh, thing. Yeah. Well, listen, we've, we've come to the end of our show. We've actually gone a little over time. Uh, Professor Jeff Ondick, thank you for joining us today on National Security uh, this week. I, I really appreciate you uh, coming down and, and sitting with me in the studio today. Well, it's been a delight. Thanks a lot, John. So, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everybody. Take care.
0: You've been listening to National Security This Week. A weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.
1: The Quarterback Club in Northfield is top-notch for good food served fast. The Quarterback Club always has daily specials that can't be beat. Today, Wednesday, you can choose from one of three specials, a hot turkey commercial with mashed potatoes, gravy, and vegetable, or choose the shrimp dinner or the shrimp basket. The Quarterback Club has the best barbecue ribs, roasted chicken, and flame-broiled burgers in town. Be sure to check them out.